Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Tuckwell, a senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I have with me today Dr Michael Holland, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist working in rural New South Wales. So thanks for joining me today, Dr Holland. And would you mind just telling us a bit about yourself? Oh, thanks, Louise. I've been the specialist local obstetrician and gynaecologist in the Urabadala Health Service for the past 18 and a half years and have been training or practicing in obstetrics and gynaecology for the past 36 years, which is a lot of babies and a lot of time on call. That's fantastic. Well done. Um, so we'll begin with a case. So we have a 35-year-old G1P0 who has just had a vacuum extraction of a four-kilogram baby after a prolonged labour, including a syntocin and infusion for augmentation. Now, the midwife's concerned about the amount of bleeding post-delivery. So New South Wales Health has a prevention, detection, escalation and management of PPH guideline. And for our emergency care providers, that can be found on the Emergency Care Institute website. Locally, we have a postpartum hemorrhage flowchart. So we'll just start by discussing the components of some of these. So Dr. Holland, what be, would be some of the risk factors for a woman to have a postpartum hemorrhage? Well, firstly, Louise, most women who experience a postpartum hemorrhage do not have a risk factor. It can happen following any birth. And the secret to management is anticipation and preparation for that possibility. It's defined as uh, in any bleeding uh, greater than or equal to 500 mils of blood loss. Uh, severe PPH is defined as uh, greater than or equal to uh, 1,000 mils of blood loss, but it also includes any woman who has signs or symptoms of hypovolemia, regardless of the volume. So it's, it's an obstetric emergency that affects about 5 to 15% of women and about 1% of women require blood transfusion and it remains one of the major causes of maternal death globally, including uh, our nation. And what we know is that prophylactic oxytocics and active management of the third stage reduce postpartum hemorrhage and they reduce the need for transfusion by uh, 50%. Both, both extremes of parity increase the risk. So from uh, primiparous women to grand multiparity, and a lot of the risk factors are, are multi, uh, are interrelated. So for example, the length of the first, second and third stages of labor increase the risk of postpartum hemorrhage independently, or they may be a consequence of the prolongation of these stages resulting in instrumental delivery uh, or uh, caesarean section. So a long labour with a big baby and operative delivery, in this case, are a re recipe for postpartum hemorrhage. Now, for the non-obstetric uh, trained person, you sometimes, you know, come into labour ward and there, there seems to be quite a lot of blood, you know, even at the best of times. So how does the obstetric team actually sort of try and quantify, you know, the 500 mils or, or the litre loss? Well, that that's notoriously inaccurate. Best thing to do, and, and you could imagine in your own kitchen if you 
drop a 300 or 500 uh, mil container on the floor. It spreads a long way. So measurement of the actual volume uh, increase by picking up and actually putting it in a jug is one step. And certainly uh, weight of sheets uh, and pads and swabs is particularly important. So quantitation is uh, particularly important, but you know, always it will be relatively inaccurate. Okay, fair enough. What sort of causes of PPH do we need to consider when looking at someone who's bleeding post-delivery? Well, we, we go back to the four T's that everyone learnt uh, in medical school, tone, trauma, tissue, and what is referred to as thrombin. So 70% of the cases are due to uh, an atonic uh, uterus, about 20% are due to some form of trauma, which can vary from uh, lower genital tract trauma, such as episiotomies or tears, uh, vaginal hematomas, cervical lacerations, broad ligament hematomas, or even uh, uterine uh, rupture. Uh, tissues uh, can, accounts for about 10%, and that is retained uh, tissues. That can be a, re uh, a completely retained placenta, or a uh, partially retained uh, placenta with uh, pieces of material, uh, placental material left behind. And then the final one, which we refer, we refer to as thrombin, is essentially the coagulopathies that can occur either primarily or secondarily to the clinical uh, events that occur, or maybe some pre-existing um, hematological problem that, that you have to deal with. So in rural settings, we take all these things into account. Some of these issues may be triaged antenatally and identified as risk factors, and then the antenatal planning is essentially in that situation. So we'd identify women antenatally who would have had a previous postpartum hemorrhage, uh, if they had abnormal placentation, had a previous caesarean section, uh, multiple pregnancies, polyhydramnios, macrosomia and any other hematological issues. And obviously some of these women will be referred elsewhere due to uh, local service capabilities in rural areas. So otherwise, the intrapartum and postpartum factors are anticipated by the midwives and the local doctors. And in our rural hospitals, we have a unique uh, interaction between uh, doctors, midwives and, uh, and nurses so that includes uh, obstetrically trained people, uh, emergency departments, general wards, theatres, midwives and nurses. And in rural areas, it's basically all hands on deck in an emergency. Okay, absolutely. Dr Holland, would you mind describing your initial approach to how you manage a patient with a postpartum hemorrhage? Well, the, the first thing you do is what is described in a lot of uh, emergencies is the issue of situational awareness. You walk in the room and the first thing you look at is the woman and you'll get an impression of uh, her clinical status, whether she's actually shocked or, or not. But the situational awareness is also what... Um, logistically is going on around you in terms of what staff is there, who's doing what, whether whether interventions have already taken place, and that is whether cannulas are in situ, IV lines up, what drugs have been given. 
initially what you need to do is uh, communicate, so which is the most effective management in that, in that role. You call for other help, which will include whether it's an obstetrician, emergency doctor, midwife, nurse, pathology, anaesthetist, and the, and the massive transfusion protocol may need to be in, initiated, which remotely will involve haematologists and trans, transfusion specialists elsewhere. And what you'd expect to start off with is, is the main principles are to replace the blood loss and, and stop the bleeding. So it comes back to your general ABC, uh, whether the woman's tachycardic, hypertensive, whether the oxygen sat saturation's low. And you have to remember in that situation that peripartum uterus has a blood flow of 750 mils per minute, in which case, um, if that's not controlled, and a woman, a 70 kilogram woman with an approximate blood volume of seven litres, if they lose 30% of blood loss, that becomes a life-threatening situation. So definitely get the history and the general uh, situation of the background of the woman, uh, antenatally, what's happened intrapartum and what's happened so far postpartum. Okay, fantastic. So... At this stage, if you've been, say, called from the emergency department, um, you know, you could help with monitoring and obtaining IV access. Um, often the midwives have already, you know, laid the woman flat and applied some oxygen. We have blood sent off, as you say, for the, for the cross match and sometimes start some warm IV fluids. In terms of, say, for instance, 70% are, are most likely due to uterine atony. Can you sort of give us a bit of a rundown of, of the timing and role of uterine massage in this instance? You mentioned the midwives having initiated things and, and certainly in rural areas where there may not be a, a doctor on site, midwives may have already got two large bore cannulas in, done the appropriate bloods, given the women oxygen, kept them warm, hopefully started replacing crystalloids to at least twice the volume of estimated blood loss. They may have already put a catheter in, hopefully, and all births, normally, unless a woman has uh, declined it, would have had their prophylactic five units of oxytocin at the delivery of the baby. Now, the midwives may have already repeated uh, that oxytocin, but traditionally, Fundal massage is an assistance to mechanically make the uterus contract and, and monitoring that it doesn't intermittently relax. So fundal massage will only work with an empty uterus and the old aphorism of an empty, well-contracted uterus doesn't bleed still stands. And I would only add that an empty, well-contracted, intact uterus doesn't bleed. So uh, as long as it uh, doesn't have a a rupture somewhere. So fundal massage is fine, but as long as the uterus is empty and and often it's not just retained products of conception, uh, fundal massage can help expel retained uh, blood clot at the time. Okay. Oh, very good. And what about bimanual compression? When, when and how would that be done? Well, I've probably only done bimanual compression under an anaesthetic, whether that's a a regional block or a or a general anaesthetic, it does have a role in trying to control massive bleeding, but uh, is is extremely uncomfortable for the woman at that time. And once again, um, that sort of bimanual compression 
would be reserved for uh, a severely hypotonic woman with an atonic uterus and is comparable basically to uh, trying to do a manual removal of placenta in, in a delivery suite. So if you're getting to the point where you're needing to do bimanual um, compression, a person would really normally be on their way to theatre. Okay, so something best probably left to the obstetric team. I think so. Okay. You mentioned about the midwife having put a urinary catheter. How does that help in this sort of scenario? Well, it, it seems as though a full bladder impedes effective uterine contractions. Okay. If you do have a full bl- a bladder, you'll have an atonic uterus sitting on top of a very full bladder. And once you get into this point of, of managing postpartum hemorrhage anyway, you're wanting the, uh, the catheter in for two reasons, to keep the bladder empty and also to be recording uh, urine output. Okay, great. So as you mentioned, the midwife, as per local protocol, may have already given a repeat bolus of syntocinin, 10 units intramuscularly or 5 units intravenously. Could you please comment on the use of ergometrin, 250 micrograms intramuscularly, if not contraindicated? Yes, definitely. Uh, Ergometrine has been around forever and it's still a very good drug that gives rapid and prolonged uterine tone. It's been out of fashion at times because of uh, its tendency to cause vomiting, uh, which I must say probably happens more with a rapid IV bolus than, than intramuscular use. Okay. And certainly has to be avoided in um, women with um, pre-existing hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Uh, so before it's given, always ask about any antenatal or intrapartum issues related to that. And normally you can give 250 micrograms approximately every five minutes up to a maximum of one milligram, so four doses overall, by which time I would imagine you, you'd be preparing your syntocin uh, on infusion with um, 40 units of syntocin in a litre of normal saline, and that needs to be uh, commenced at uh, 250 mils per hour, which is essentially 10, mils, uh, 10 units per hour intravenously, and, and I know this doesn't happen uh, very often, but uh, to avoid the hypotonic solutions um, like 5% dextrose in that situation, once that dextrose is metabolised, you're left with water and, uh, and high-dose syntocin on its, in itself has an antidiuretic effect, so you'll end up with hypo, severe hyponatremia. Okay, so just use the normal saline. Great. And what, what other drugs can be used in the management of PPH? Well, it's, there, is, there is a flowchart. Our next step after oxytocic, such as uh, syntocin and ergometrine, would be misoprostol. Misoprostol is, takes a bit longer to have effect, but lasts a, a long time. Uh, it, duration of, of contraction lasts. My feeling with uh, following strictly uh, one step after the other is that I often use the agents that have a more delayed onset earlier because you're not wanting to wait until it has an effect. Mm. So uh, if something like misoprostol needs to be considered fairly soon after the commencement of, uh, of a syntocinal infusion, and generally we give about 800 micrograms uh, PR. 
Similarly, in terms of timing, um, tranexamic acid, uh, the antifibrinolytic, can be given intravenously. You can give a, a gram IV, and that can be repeated in 30, 30 minutes. But it, it's most of its effect is if it's given within three hours of a of a postpartum hemorrhage. So again, needs to be thought of sooner rather than later. Okay, and what about um, carboprost? Do you ever use that locally here? A carboprost is, uh, and and my one bit of advice working in a maternity unit or theatres is to have your PPH box set up with these agents prepared. So it's a one-stop shop for your PPH. You go to the box. Uh, the drugs that can be kept in the box will be there or the whole box could be kept in the fridge if necessary. But carboprost would be one of those agents. It can be given uh, intramuscularly. It's a methylated prostaglandin F2-alpha it can be given intramuscularly with 250 micrograms intramuscularly every 15 minutes for to up to two milligrams. Its other use, which would be reserved again for by the time a woman got to a theatre or may already have the abdomen open, such as at the time of caesarean, is to be able to give 250 micrograms intramyometrially I mean, that, that could be done through the anterior abdominal wall, but it's normally done uh, once the, the abdomen's open. And most obstetricians tend to divide the doses up into different portions of the uterus rather than just giving a single intramyometrial shot. Again, with uh, prostaglandin F2-alpha, you have to be cautious in, with previous hypertension and, and also the prostaglandin agents uh, have a tendency to potentially produce uh, bronchospasm. So people, women with asthma would be, uh, it'd be administered with caution. Fair enough. You know, we do actually have our local flow chart and it sort of summarises additional measures for uterine atony to include, as we discussed, uterine massage, the oxytocic drugs, uh, bimanual compression, which you said is probably more in, in theatres or heading that way, and then, if required, a, a battery balloon. Would that be fair enough? Yeah, that's correct. And so by the time a woman's getting to the massive postpartum hemorrhage stage, you'll, you'll be heading to theatre for a number of reasons, and that's uh, not only to be preparing for an examination under anaesthesia and any surgical intervention, it's simply having uh, more assistance to call in the anaesthetist and, uh, and theatre staff who are also experienced in dealing with um, post uh, large hemorrhage. By this time, as I mentioned before, the massive transfusion protocol would be uh, initiated, which primarily is an, in anticipation of, of red cell transfusion, doesn't commit you to transfusing, but at least you have made contact with the haematology or blood bank involved so that you have a plan of management, you have an idea of how much how much blood product is available in your institution, what might need to be called in, and what the necessary uh, blood tests need to be done at that time. And, and that's a line of communication that's uh, very wise to initiate as soon as possible. Okay, no, that's great. And I thought we might chat a little bit more about the massive transfusion after we've covered the other T's.
So if we had a patient who had not yet had her placenta delivered or had an incomplete placenta, how would you manage this? Well, that that requires management in theatre. The first thing to do basically is is do a do a quick examination before anaesthetic to make sure that that placenta is just not sitting in the vagina, which you sometimes uh, find. Otherwise, you need to prepare for examination under anaesthesia with manual removal and the consideration of uh, the use of the uh, Bakri balloon. It also means that you have the opportunity in theatre to perform a general examination under anaesthesia to exclude trauma, uh, inversion and hematomas. So essentially, uh, if the or when the uterus is uh, successfully emptied, the indication for a Bakri balloon would still be the situation where there was intermittent atony of the um, of the uterus, so it would be used with combination with the with the continuation of the syntocinol infusion. Okay, so in terms of trauma, as one of the T's, what, what actually would be the most common types of trauma that would actually be significant enough to cause a PPH? Well, the most common thing is simply lower genital tract trauma to the vagina and the perineum. So a tear following the birth can bleed quite dramatically until the quickest way to stop anything bleeding in most situations is to uh, stitch it up. So definitely major vaginal tears uh, could bleed, episiotomies could bleed. We have to identify at that time uh, whether there is any um, anal sphincter injury. So that in itself would require examination under anaesthesia and primary repair. Uh, Uterine inversion is uncommon and can be diagnosed in uh, delivery suite most of the time. Uh, It has a different picture. Quite often there's more pain associated with it and the pain is sometimes uh, greater than the volume of bleeding and interestingly enough often associated with more vagal um, phenomena because of the fundus of the uterus protruding through the cervix and you can feel that normally on vaginal examination of a smooth round ball like a tennis ball or larger in the vagina but that would require a hydrostatic replacement in theatre. Similarly you can get uh, hematomas. The site of the hematoma will normally be determined by the relationship to the cervical ligaments so it'll either be a broad ligament hematoma, which can be you know, treated like any sort of closed or concealed hemorrhage or a, um, or a lower hematoma. And they, they basically should be conserved, managed conservatively and less expanding because incising them and draining them will often just produce more bleeding. And that's particularly an area that tranexamic acid uh, has, a, has a role in. Okay. Our local flowchart just summarises this by saying specific measures to address trauma include correcting inversion, uh, repairing lacerations, as you mentioned, identifying rupture, managing any hematomas and considering vaginal packing. So certainly rupture, I find, is not easy to examine at an examination, uh, easy to diagnose at an examination under anaesthesia, but certainly needs to be suspected in any vaginal birth after caesarean 
and uh, and and it it does not happen in primiparous uh, women. It, it only happens in multips. And then our final T being sort of thrombin or clotting disorders, in which patient would you see this as a possible cause? Well, most of the people with these haematological factors have, have already probably been identified because we know that they've got thrombocytopenia due to ITP or something like that, or that we know that they've got an inherited disorder of haemostasis like von Willebrand's. We may know already that they're on anti or on or have been on anticoagulants. So most of those people, if they've been identified, would hopefully not be delivering in a rural setting and certainly to have a plan. Others, the others are generally people where there is an antenatal, intrapartum or postpartum uh, event that puts them at risk. And certainly severe preeclampsia and eclampsia leads to coagulation disorders. Antipartum hemorrhage similarly leads to a higher risk of postpartum hemorrhage. And the other old saying is the antipartum hemorrhage weakens, it's the postpartum hemorrhage that kills. So any per, for antipartum hemorrhage for any particular reason. Um, sepsis can lead to a coagulopathy, fetal death in utero, which rarely see the delayed um, coagulopathies related to that. And in other more acute areas like um, uh, amniotic fluid embolus, it's part of the very early clinical picture. But most, in my experience, most coagulopathies occur as a consequence of the downward spiral uh, that you get into with um, postpartum hemorrhage, uh, shock, hypovolemia, poor perfusion and poor oxygenation, which emphasises the need for active resuscitation, which uh, generally prevents that. Okay. And so that then brings us, you know, to talking about, you know, commencing a massive um, transfusion uh, or you know, giving blood. Our protocols advise that if there's thought to be blood loss greater than 1,500 mils and there are signs of, sh or there are signs of shock, we should commence blood. Is that basically your approach to, to the triggers for commencing transfusion? More, more so if there is uh, are any signs of, of shock. It, it is uh, interesting how stable uh, a woman can be uh, with a, a loss of a litre and a litre and a, a half uh, because of the increased blood volume that you get uh, with women in pregnancy. But certainly the initial thing is to replace uh, the estimated blood loss uh, with crystalloids. The decision for using red blood cells uh, will be coordinated between the people with the woman in front of them and the and the haematologist and uh, transfusion service that you're dealing with. And I think that just basically needs to be uh, individualised, but uh, certainly preparation needs to be made for that and also uh, the preparation needs to be made in terms of the appropriate haematological and uh, biochemical investigations that you have at that time. Okay, so if you're using crystalloids initially, do you have a maximum number of litres before you think I really need to move on to blood or, you know, in terms of avoiding dilution or...? 
Well, we know. Things. Yeah, well, we know that um, there's dilutional effects, and we know that it's the crystalloids only very temporarily maintained in the intra intravascular space, but they're still the first response you have. I suppose the issue of saying give two to three times uh, the estimated blood loss, that's a different thing if, uh, if you're, it's a different thing dealing with 600 mils of, of blood loss uh, versus 2.6 litres of blood loss. So you're not necessarily going to give five or six litres of, of crystalloid at that stage. So I would say, uh, you know, firstly, you're going to need, by the time a person becomes um, symptomatically hypovolemic, uh, you're going to need at least two litres. And, and this, is, this is the case that we find with uh, concealed hemorrhages, such as a concealed hemorrhage with an abruption. If a woman has no visible bleeding, comes in with a clinical abruption, and you know the blood's there, she's going to need two litres of crystalloid at least to start off with. And then you'd be thinking about blood if they still need... Yeah, so once, you, once you're getting up to the two or three litres of crystalloid, you'd be looking at giving blood. Okay. You mentioned earlier, you know, by this stage we'd be having the anaesthetic team involved to assist with the resuscitation and in, in case, you know, the patient needs to go to theatre. So other important things, obviously we need to keep the patient warm and be repeating the blood counts and coags and calcium and gases every 30 minutes. Now, our local flowchart for managing clotting disorders includes using TXA, giving packed red cells and replacing factors with um, FFP and cryoprecipitate. Uh, we don't actually stock any platelets at our facility. And then the New South Wales PBH guidelines um, states we should give cryoprecipitate if the fibrinogen is less than 2.5 and calcium gluconate if the calcium is less than 1.1. And as I said, avoid hypothermia and acidosis. So, Dr. Holland, what are your indications for going to theatre in a patient with a PBH? and the interventions you use in the operating theatre? Well, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, going to theatre in a rural area should be done sooner rather than later because of the increased staff that you'd need at the time. And as we mentioned earlier, the need for a thorough examination under anaesthesia. Um, I mean, your indication to go to theatre would be directed by your diagnosis. So obviously, if you thought it was a ruptured uh, uterus following a, a previous caesarean section, you'd be preparing for laparotomy in that situation. Okay. I think the this or you we don't we haven't forgotten that um, postpartum hemorrhages essentially can occur any time after the baby's born, which can include at the time of a caesarean. So. In many ways, um, there are different techniques uh, that you would use if you've um, performed the caesarean and the uterus uh, continues to bleed. So at a, in a caesarean situation, you'd continue to try all the methods that we were discussing there if the abdomen was still open, but you'd be unlikely to put a Bacri balloon in with the abdomen open, it'd be more likely to be at that point considering intramyometrial carboprost. And when the abdomen's open, uh, you have the chance of putting in what's called a hemostatic stitch called a B-Lynch suture that is inserted into the lower segment 
uh, goes over the top of the fundus, across to the other side, back over the top of the fundus, and back through the lower segment, and is essentially a big compressive uh, suture. Now, that could be done if it's due to a ruptured uterus. Well, you identify the uh, core, the degree of the rupture, and try and perform a primary repair if necessary. In some situations with uh, uterine rupture, the only uh, uh, recourse is to hysterectomy. So a subtotal hysterectomy is often the most appropriate way to go in that situation to control bleeding. And then there are many other things that, we, that you can do locally, which essentially are attempts at trying to reduce bleeding to the uterus from its um, arterial supply. So ligation of the actual uterine arteries, which are parallel to the to the uterine uh, body at the, at the level of the cervix, or if you're experienced enough to look for the anterior division of the internal iliac artery, identify that and ligate that bilaterally. Oh wow, gosh! So um, doesn't happen very doesn't happen know. very often. <laughs> it it can be uh, life saving in that situation. Okay, so essentially for a patient who hasn't had a caesarean, if you can't actually stop the bleeding in the labour ward and you not have ongoing resuscitation, they'll need to go to theatres essentially and for operative patients if they've got ongoing bleeding. That's right. They go. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Now, we haven't forgotten the baby in this whole scenario and um, for our patient the baby was assessed by the midwife and was doing well. So just before we finish up, Dr Holland, any other advice you'd like to give about um, rural providers for managing or assisting in managing postpartum hemorrhage in our setting? Well, rural areas often, to use the cliche, punch above their weight. And that's because of very well-trained and competent doctors, midwives and nurses. Now, unfortunately, you've got to know your service capabilities within each unit. Uh, the perfect storm we sometimes get into is when you have a cascade of uh, locums, uh, medical practitioners and midwives. If you're in that situation, certainly try to identify the service capabilities, uh, what the blood product uh, capacity is of your unit, know how much, how many pack cells you have, what uh, other blood products you have available, uh, whether the unit has a Bacri balloon or not, uh, what the anaesthetic staff, etc., know. And essentially in these emergencies, obviously works best with that background information as well as communication between everyone that's involved. Fantastic. And I think, you know, if you're a locum, being guided by the, the local experience staff as to how you can assist best in those scenarios as well. So- that's exactly right. Yeah. And and I think let me say this don't don't push someone out of the way who's doing a good job just because you're the doctor. So the midwives will often be doing a great job. You may just need to stand back and and uh, and direct traffic at that stage. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much Dr. Holland for your time today um, to discuss the challenging management of postpartum hemorrhage in a rural hospital and I greatly exper- uh, appreciate your experience and wisdom. Thanks, Louise. It was a pleasure. Oh, great.